On Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope, today we are talking about reopening. Is it too soon? Is it too late? Interesting. All over the news today, we have leaders from around the world and around the United States talking about getting out of these lockdowns, how to properly reopen and reboot these economies. I would like to start by saying I don't envy these people. I don't envy their position of trying to make the right call. The reason is because there isn't enough information yet to make the right call. Everyone is still guessing, but it's become politically necessary now to start talking, gesturing about reopening. The reason for that, of course, is there is a lot of tension between keeping the pandemic from overwhelming the planet, our medical resources, taking too many lives, etc., and allowing the deteriorating economic conditions to take too many lives and overwhelm the planet. Let me be clear, I do not see that there is enough information right now to even choose between the lesser of the two evils. But it's become politically charged And now it's time to start talking about it. So it's all over the news. Starting with the New York Times. Across Germany, smaller stores are allowed to open their doors for the first time in nearly a month on Monday as part of an initial measure to ease restrictions imposed in March as a coronavirus outbreak took hold. Stores no larger than 8,600 square feet were allowed to open, but customers are required to maintain a safe distance. Car dealerships, bicycle shops, and bookstores are allowed to resume business regardless of size. Germany has recorded 141,672 coronavirus infections with 4,404 fatalities. But the rate of infection has been steadily slowing in recent days and the country's health system has been able to cope with the strain. Here's my commentary on this. These small stores could have stayed open the whole time, as long as people followed careful social distancing. But I also think that human nature somewhat dictates that we had to have a more complete lockdown, a more complete stay-at-home order to wake people up so that they would practice social distancing. A lot of people needed to be convinced. And from APnews.com, that's the Associated Press, President Donald Trump, in a roller coaster weekend of reversals and contradictions, told governors to call your own shots on lifting stay at home orders once the coronavirus threat subsides. But then he took to Twitter to push some to reopen their economies quickly and to tell them that it was their job to ramp up the testing. As an aside, I would like to point out I don't appreciate manipulative headlines like these. I don't care who's in the White House or who's the governor or who's the mayor. You know, it doesn't matter to me if we have a Democrat or a Republican. Headlines like these are manipulative. They're designed as propaganda. This one is fairly mild, but at least we do get some information out of it. That information is that the President of the United States is trying to move the nation toward thinking about reopening. And there was some back and forth on how that ought to be done. It seemed at first that he was claiming the authority to reopen the nation, and then he passed it to the governors, encouraged them to get on with the program, and then some of the governors pushed back and said, we don't have a coordinated response. How do you expect us to? You're in charge. What's going on here? Well, it's a hot potato, folks. 
I think that everybody expects that as the social distancing and stay-at-home orders are eased, then we will have fresh outbreaks in new places. It's pretty much guaranteed that's going to happen. The question is, will we be able to manage those outbreaks in a reasonable manner or not? And we don't have enough information at this point to make that call. It would be nice if we could. We have more information now than we had before. I believe what's happened is that the economic threats have become so large and the public awareness of those threats has become substantial and protests have started and this is going to be the subject of the day, the soup du jour for quite a while now. How to reopen, when to reopen, it is a hot potato because we know that as we reopen, lives will be lost. No one wants to blame for that. It is time to talk about the reopening, but very few people are willing to make that call, especially when your political career is at stake. I also find it interesting that in this AP News article, it says that states are teaming up to coordinate the evaluation of the coronavirus situation in their states and to start easing some of the stay-at-home orders. Here's the funny part about that. There are a lot of states, especially the smaller states back east, the New England states and the like, where state boundaries are a little bit fuzzy. People commute from state to state to state, and a coordinated effort kind of makes sense because of the mobility of that population. But it was the northwestern states that formed one of the largest coalitions, and those states are huge, and the cities are spread out, and the population is not that highly mobile. So what's going on here? Well, I think that, again, no one wants to make the wrong call. If you have six or eight or ten states that make a call, then no one can blame the governor of one of them if it goes awry. I know that sounds a little bit pessimistic, but I would like to assert that from a health standpoint and a science standpoint, the call needs to be made on a much, much smaller scale. Citywide, yes. Countywide, perhaps. Depends on where your county lines fall. So we should be managing this as locally as possible so we can have quick responses, so that we can evaluate what's going on, so no new outbreaks can slip under the radar. The right way to manage this is with as much local information as possible. We need boots on the ground, and we need careful measuring. So is there well-founded, valid information out there on which we could start basing some of these decisions? Well, the numbers of COVID-19 cases continue to rise, and with the increase in testing, we're going to see that. So we really can't use the number of COVID-19 cases as an indicator of how we're doing. Now, I've searched and searched for statistics that would be reasonable indicators of the status of this outbreak, and if they exist, they're certainly very difficult to find. I think that some people would like to assume that the President of the United States or the governors of the individual states, have information we don't have. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think we're all still flying a little bit undereducated on this situation. But let's look into some of the numbers we can see. How about the daily numbers of hospitalizations from COVID-19? I kind of like this one. Granted, it's measuring the serious cases, the ones that are serious enough to convince someone to go to a hospital, but if we could actually see the change in the rate of hospitalizations, it might be an indicator of how we're doing overall. The CDC, the Center of Disease Control, has published a chart, but it's too generic to be of much value. 
it does indicate that the rate of the increase is slowing, but the rate of the hospitalizations is still increasing. Let me try to explain that, (laughs) okay? When you're in a car and it's accelerating very quickly out of a traffic light, for instance, at first the acceleration is pushing you back in the seat, and then the driver can ease off the accelerator a little bit, you're still accelerating. The speedometer is still increasing, but you can feel the acceleration ease a little bit. The change in the rate of acceleration actually has a name, and it's called jerk. The other way to think about it is it's the bounce you feel when you're on an elevator and it takes off or comes to a stop. So when we're talking about changes in rates of acceleration, that's really what we're talking about here. The number of hospitalizations is still increasing, but that number is increasing a little bit less quickly than it was before. Hmm. What does this tell us about reopening the economy? Not sure. Not sure. But if you do hear a political leader talking about reopening the economy, this will be the statistic that they're going to cite because it's the only one that kind of indicates a little bit of good news right now. The total percent of the population that tests positive for the symptoms is another metric that we could use to help make some of these tough decisions. And this is an unknown. There have been some studies where random sampling of the population was done, and these are very preliminary. Right now, the indications are that much more of the population has had COVID-19 than originally thought, and we're going to talk more about that later, but the results are still preliminary for a variety of reasons. How about this metric? The total percent of the population with antibodies. Regretfully, that's also unknown. We still don't have an FDA-approved antibody test, though hopefully we will soon. There are lots of tests that are coming out, but read the fine print. They're not FDA-approved. And here's the real deal kicker. We don't really know what immunity is achieved by the antibodies. That's an unknown. It could take years to get the answer to that last point. How much immunity is achieved by the antibodies? I believe we don't have a choice but to trust that some immunity is there and begin testing that by carefully observing what happens when people with the antibodies interact. What's the bottom line? I can't find, and I don't believe we do have, the statistics that are necessary to reopen. We don't have the test kits. We probably don't have the medical resources. But it is possible to carefully reopen as long as we have data, we protect the susceptible populations, and practice rather extreme safety measures. But reopening would be like a giant experiment and would very likely require more lockdowns as we measure how to proceed with wisdom and with caution. Now, this is politically untenable. No one wants to say, okay, we're reopened, go back to work, and then have to reverse it and say, go back home again. The last thing we need right now is false hope and disappointments. What we also don't need right now is politically charged decision-making about reopening. I would like to address a subject that has only come up a couple of times in the news that I've seen. People seem to be tiptoeing around this because it's morally and politically charged. All indications are that there are susceptible populations to the COVID-19. These are the seniors, the elderly, people with underlying health conditions. And for the rest of the population, it's a fairly mild illness. I've been saying this all along. We keep hearing news that COVID-19 is really no big deal and we should reopen. Then we hear news of horror stories from hospitals and funeral homes around the world, including places like New York, 
that send the message that this is a high death rate crisis, and if we don't control it, then consequences will be dire. Who's right? Both are right. The numbers today from worldometers.com show 1.6 million active cases with 54,000 serious or critical cases. So the critical cases are 3% of the active cases worldwide. That's a much lower number than it was a few weeks ago. But as more testing has been done, the denominator in the equation keeps getting larger. We know more and more people have had the virus. Now we know what the numerator is. We know how many serious cases there are because those people go to hospitals and they're counted. We don't know about the mild cases that may never go reported or ever get measured. So while this is great news, COVID-19 keeps getting statistically less and less dangerous as we knew it would, but we still have a very troubling dichotomy. COVID-19 remains a very dangerous illness for susceptible populations. There is a temptation to adopt an us versus them mentality. Don't go there. If you think the us is the population of should be mild case people, then reverse your thinking for a minute. Imagine that the us is the susceptible population. Whichever population you may think you belong to, reverse that in your mind for a moment and see how that feels. Who is the us? Who is the them? It depends on one's perspective, doesn't it? And the emotions that result from considering each scenario are very different. Here's some points. You can't stereotype. While we know that age and overall health are involved, we don't know each person's individual survivability. We can't discriminate that way, nor should we. So it falls on all of us then to take care of all of us. It falls on all of us, I repeat, to take care of all of us. All human life matters. We cannot discriminate. I will not repeat the news stories that start addressing the discrimination. Frankly, they're too horribly distasteful. I will only restate my fundamental assertion. All human life matters. There is no us in them. We're in this together. Moving on from the Associated Press, again, asymptomatic cases. The head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says 25% of infected people might not have symptoms. The vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, thinks it may be as high as 60 to 70% among the military personnel. None of these numbers can be fully trusted because they're based on flawed and inadequate testing, said Dr. Michael Mina of Harvard School of Public Health. So why does this matter? Well, if large numbers of people are asymptomatic and actually have COVID-19, then that denominator we've been talking about, the total number of cases, goes way, way, way up. And that changes how dangerous this disease is, at least from the perspective of the entire population. It doesn't necessarily change the danger of the disease for the susceptible populations. Now, on Friday, researchers reported results from antibody tests on 3,300 people in California's Santa Clara County. Between 1.5 and 2.8% have been infected, they claimed. That would mean 48,000 to 81,000 cases in the county, more than 50 times the number that had been confirmed. 50 times. But keep in mind, they asked for volunteers, and so people that thought they may have 
coronavirus may have been more likely to volunteer. So that's why these numbers can't really be trusted. But there is an indication that there are a lot of cases out there that are so mild that they've not been tested, nor have they had medical intervention, nor have they gone to a hospital. And this type of a 50x multiplier means that coronavirus has a similar fatality rate as the common flu. I think that's good news because it takes some of the teeth out of it. But susceptible populations are still susceptible, and we don't yet know. The numbers just have not been validated. Another example. In New York, a hospital tested all pregnant women coming in to deliver over a two-week period. Nearly 14% of those who arrived with no symptoms of coronavirus turned out to have it. Of the 33 positive cases, 29 had no symptoms when tested, although some developed them later. So 29 out of 33 positive cases had no symptoms at the time that they were tested. It is an indicator that there are a lot of asymptomatic people walking around out there. This also matters, though, when it comes to spreading the illness. A lot of people have it and they didn't get sick, but that doesn't mean that they can't spread the virus. This is the reason why we need to all be taking care of each other, because we don't know who's contagious and who is not. If you feel okay, you might still be contagious. The article continues, Antibody testing in particular needs to be done in an unbiased approach on groups of people that are representative of the geographic, social, racial, and other conditions, Mina said. The CDC and other groups plan such studies, and they could guide public health advice on returning to normal life for people in certain areas. I love this. There's a plan to do this. Well, let's get on with it. (laughs) This is perhaps the most important thing we could do, developing a measure that would allow us to get back to normalcy in an educated and safe way. We really need this. Back to the article. If infections are more widespread than previously understood, it's possible that more people have developed some level of immunity to the virus that could stifle the spread through what's called herd immunity. But scientists caution There is still too much to learn about whether mild illnesses confer immunity and how long that immunity might last. It will probably be months before enough reliable testing has been done to answer those questions and others, including how widespread infections have been and the virus's true mortality rate. If they've all seen the virus before, then maybe you can relax in that neighborhood, quote-unquote, and ease social distancing, Mina said. We're not anywhere close to where we need to be on antibody testing to do that yet. Do you hear the back and forth and misinformation and confusion? We have the president. We have heads of state of other countries. We have governors all talking about reopening. Yet we're still hearing things like, it'll be months before we know. I do suspect that we will attempt to reopen prior to having all the information that we need to carefully, scientifically, reopen. But if everyone practices safe social distancing, if we're all very cautious, and if we can monitor the situation closely, maybe we can avoid major outbreaks. I'm not sure if we can or not, but at this point, it's going to be experimental. When we reopen, let me repeat, it's going to be experimental. It doesn't mean the crisis is over. It means we're trying new things. From foxnews.com, they're claiming to have an exclusive, well, it won't be exclusive for very long, bipartisan group unveils the proposal for reopening the economy. After spending weeks diving into coronavirus issues over video conferencing, a bipartisan group of 50 House members has crafted a plan for what's needed to reopen the economy safely 
and help businesses recover from crippling mandatory shutdowns. Fox News got an exclusive first look at the Problem Solvers Caucus plan that outlines specific public health, economic recovery, and long-term stimulus plans the group wants Congress and President Trump to embrace as the nation tries to emerge from weeks-long quarantines and growing mass layoffs. I downloaded this plan from Scribe.com, and that is S-C-R-I-B-D. They left the E out. Scribe.com because I wanted to see what it consisted of. At a glance, it appears to be a pretty reasonable plan. I'm going to just hit some of the highlights because it's over six pages long. Here is one line in the introduction that I like. Even as we continue to focus on the health crisis, we need a clear back-to-work plan with clear benchmarks addressing the multifaceted approach we need to reopen America safely and with the best chance of reigniting the economy immediately. Immediately. Hmm. We must continue to work together, stay focused on the problem, and put country ahead of ideological opportunism. Hey, that sounds good. Very upbeat, very positive, yet a little bit cautious. The immediately part kind of got my attention because that's not going to happen. But it continues, below are the benchmarks we must meet to reopen America. This will require a regional industry-by-industry, incremental, multifaceted, and data-driven approach. This isn't a one-size-fits-all vision, but rather a dynamic, multi-pronged, multi-front strategy combining health, economic rescue, and stimulus plans for our nation's immediate future. They stress that the plan is bipartisan. Well, that speaks well. I'm cautiously going to say okay. On issues like these, we need a bipartisan solution, that's for sure. What follows is about a five-page checklist on things that need to be addressed to reopen America. Did you hear me say that? Five pages of criteria that need to be accomplished to reopen America. The first group is on operational protocols. It says, establish and implement public health approved best practice protocols to follow and best extinguish any viral hotspots identified post-opening of America. You may note they didn't say how to do this. They only said that it had to be done. Then it follows up to say, if unable to extinguish such viral hotspots, have available public health approved and established operational protocols to contain such viral hotspots. Again, they didn't say how, but they said it needed to be contained. If unable to contain the hotspots, then have established, fully agreed upon, who's doing the agreeing, operational and actionable mitigation measures to arrest the transmission of the virus from traveling widespread beyond the viral hotspot area. And then it says, we don't need to treat every community and sector the same. We can consider regional and industry-specific openings. This is the key. This is the part they got right. (laughs) We do need to be looking at things industry by industry and in a localized regional way. The next section says we need rapid and ubiquitous testing. Well, (laughs) that's been the struggle from the start, hasn't it? We do need rapid and ubiquitous testing. We must have a robust rapid testing system in place, including both proven serological testing for those who have developed antibodies and sound diagnostic testing to monitor the virus in our communities. So they want mass testing with rapid results and contact tracing databases. So what they're talking about is really, really quick test results so we can test the masses. And if someone is positive, then we need to be able to trace anyone that they've come in contact with. So let me go back to that word I kind of chuckled about in the introduction. They said something about immediate. 
the FDA approval of antibody testing could take months, folks. That's not immediate. But before I make a judgment call, let's continue and see what else they want. Personal protective equipment. We will need adequate supply, chain resources, and logistic delivery capability for personal protective equipment. Boy, that's a bit of a tongue twister. Let's try this. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, then how many pecks of pickled peppers did Peter Piper peck? Did I get it? How about this? Peter Piper picked a peck of personal protective equipment. Oh, well, never mind. Let's get back to the back-to-work checklist. They're, of course, talking about masks, goggles, gloves, etc. They're even saying they want protective masks for all K-12 schoolchildren. Wow, that's a lot. They want real-time health system capacity, meaning we must have accessible real-time reporting mechanisms that compile and distribute data on the state and local hospital capacity, including both base and surge capacity, etc., etc., etc. This is something we should have had prior to this crisis, folks. Frontline healthcare workers. We must ensure that we have the regional and national staffing levels of doctors. Yes, we know where this is headed. We need to have enough healthcare workers to manage a crisis of unknown size. That's what they're saying. Secondary healthcare system demands and protocols. Outpatient facilities, tertiary care networks, long-term care, nursing and veterans homes, inpatient hospice facilities, etc. all need well-defined operational protocols. Hmm. Okay, I thought we already had that. Workplace. All workplaces open for business will need to configure layouts and workspaces to maintain required social distancing along with appropriate personal protective equipment resources. Ha! I said it. Then they stress cleaning and sanitizing. And it goes on to say that some industries with large group gatherings, such as restaurants, airlines, theaters, public transit, will have to follow stricter standards to operate. Okay. Here's another checkbox. Best practice continuous improvement plans. So as we reopen, they want to make sure that we keep on improving our practices as we go along. Logistical supply chain disruption support plans. They don't want supply chains to be disrupted. So they want to put together plans so that that doesn't happen. There will be travel restrictions. There will be strategic stockpiles of personal protective equipment. We'll need to prioritize the development of therapeutics and a vaccine and immediately begin syringe production. Wait a minute. Immediate, immediate, immediate. Then it says, with a vaccine still many months away. Hmm. Okay. Cleaning and sanitizing. Well, they already mentioned that. Day-to-day health guidance. The CDC will need to deliver specific and strict guidance on what Americans need to follow when they're outside their home and in different settings. Yeah, well, yes. I guess the point is, The protocols can change, so we need day-to-day health guidance. Health system funding, yeah, this is going to be expensive. And then they get to the economic recovery checklist. You know what? They start talking about regulatory fixes. They talk about bailout plans. They talk about investments in states, counties, and cities. They talk about agriculture relief, infrastructure investment, infrastructure investment, So what they're saying is that because of COVID-19, we must make substantial investments in our nation's infrastructure. And it says from air, rail, roads, tunnels, bridges to water and broadband. And here's the last point. I'm going to read it in its entirety. New and continued stimulus action. For the time being, we must support continued aggressive stimulus programs implemented and adopted by recent legislative, regulatory and central bank actions. Additional similar actions should be considered 
This is essential to providing the necessary rescue relief and ultimately stimulative structures across our economy to ensure every individual, worker, business, and government entity threatened by COVID-19 fully recovers. Such policy is also critical to reviving the nation's underlying economy for the long term. I don't want to make fun of this. This document has many very sound and valid recommendations in it. The one point I want to make, I think I already made, it says immediately, and then they list things that take months and months and months to accomplish. Well, we have to start somewhere. It is fantastic that our political leadership have started the discussion of reopening. And I believe that a careful, phased reopening can start soon, But when I say that, I'm talking about the businesses and industries that probably could have stayed open the whole time if everyone practiced necessary health measures. But we should be doing that. There are some industries that don't need to be shut down right now. I guess I remain skeptical. While the world talks of reopening, the recommendations require months and months and months of manufacturing and research and medical developments and approvals by the FDA. It is possible that we will try the approach of carefully reopening before we have all the resources in place to do so and just wait and see what happens. That might be the direction that the nation takes and the world takes. I don't know. I think it's fair to say that this experience did teach us that we don't have all the emergency resources in place when things like this happen. If there is a takeaway, maybe it is that. That as a world, we can prepare for such eventualities and be able to manage it much better the next time. So what is going to happen about reopening America and the world? I don't know. I don't have a clue. I really don't want to start speculating. What we may find is that we finally establish that the mortality rate of this illness is lower than presumed and we begin protecting susceptible populations, and we begin re-entering normalcy more quickly than anticipated, kind of as an experiment to see what happens. If we can protect the susceptible populations, that might be a good path forward. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not going to make that call. And like I said before, we really can't identify clearly who, which individuals are susceptible, and which individuals are not. But we're all in this together, and we need to take care of each other. Perhaps the second big takeaway here is that this is going to require a lot of patience, and a lot of hope, and a lot of love. And like I said in the last episode, love is the answer to weathering events like these. Here's an idea for you. Get your smartphone out and put an alert into the calendar or an alarm on the clock. And when that alert comes up, That's a reminder to reach out to five people that day. Text them, email them, write a letter, make a phone call. If we each reach out to each other and check in on each other in that way, let each other know that we care, that we're still there, and that we're not alone, then this is going to go a whole lot better. You know, I just barely mentioned some of the numbers today. There's one number I'd like to stress here at the close. That 636,000 people have recovered, and these are just the ones that were tested so that we know that they've recovered. And if we do have that 50 times multiplier that came out of that study in California, Santa Clara County, then that recovered number is not 636,000. Get ready for this. 
It is potentially 31,800,000 people that have very, very mild cases or have already recovered from COVID-19. Sure, we only know of 2,400,000 coronavirus cases that have been confirmed, but we might have 31 million, almost 32 million milder recovered cases worldwide, and that's great news. There are still so many more unknowns than we have knowns, and that's kind of the way that this is going to roll. So people, let's keep hope. Let's be patient. This will work out, and it is going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. This is your host, Kurt Linville, and Weathering Coronavirus is produced by Caleb Linville. Until the next episode... Be safe out there.